Hello. <laughs> it is very good to be here. There have been so many people. I have. I actually went on walkabout a few minutes ago because I looked around and I saw so many people. Many of you, I can't remember your names, but as I looked around, I thought, well, I'm just going to go press some flesh here. <laughs> I want to go and just uh, greet you and it's very good to be here. We have not been in Texas since we were here last year. And for this, uh, I think, I think the last time we were here in Texas was at this conference. And then we went from here to Montana. And in Montana, we were with John and Gloria Cathcart and uh, those folks up there and for their mission summit. And so we took our grandson with us then. And uh, so he was able, he said it was a life-changing experience for him to go up there. That's Dory's son, Cyrus. And then this year we're going up after this conference, planning to, Lord willing. <laughs> we're going up and uh, we're taking our granddaughter with us, his sister. She's 22. She just graduated from Ringling College of Art and Design with a bachelor's degree in, in art. We're just very pleased to have uh, these kids. We have, uh, we have six grandchildren. Christy and I have been married, and next month will be 53 years. We are just pleased at the blessings of the Lord. And um, back about, uh, 40, about 28 years ago, we were, our home church was in Belleville, Illinois, and uh, with Brother Redman and then Hal Santos. And then they uh, had a change of their missions, uh, the way they did missions, and uh, focusing more on those member missionaries who came from their church. And so we began to realize we needed to find an, another home church. And uh, Brother Bell had been, John Bell had been our friend for since we arrived here 47 years earlier. And actually when he left IBC teaching uh, major and minor prophets, I was his replacement. And so that was just a, a very good thing. And so I called him up and I said, Brother Bell, there's a change of uh, things here at the church. And I'm just curious, is there room in the inn? He said, come on down. <laughs> and so that was very good. And so we've been here now, this was our home base, even though for nearly 40 years we were living in Africa and Europe, and uh, we just really appreciated those experiences. This is still our home church, and we try to keep in touch, not as much, of course, as we uh, would like to, but we do enjoy being here. I would like to, um, and so I, and I appreciate the prayers of everyone for uh, the situations I've been through. I'm not gonna go into those details, uh, but I just want to say it's very good to be standing and it's very good to be here and it's very good to be blessed of the Lord. And I am very thankful for all that he has done in my life. I'm wanting to speak to you this evening out of the book of Ecclesiastes chapter three. And uh, as I look at that, it says it's time for everything. And as I, and I begin there, um, I, I will tell a story 
uh, about a place in Australia. Uh, at, after a few minutes, I'll tell that story. I told it this morning at uh, IBC, and uh, just and I, I want to share that story with you tonight as well. But I want to say that um, in Ecclesiastes three. Verse 1, for everything there is a season. And I think we all will agree with that. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which has been planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And then skip to verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in the hearts of men. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. As I read that, I thought about how that God is so good to us and he said everything in perimeters and everything is in order. God is an orderly God. He did not just say, okay, I'll, I'll make the earth and I'll, I'll do it and he did it. No, it was much more organized than that. He had a plan and he put everything in order according to the very best way it could be. And I, I, he put the, the things that grow in the desert in the desert. And then he grew, put those things that grow in tropical climates in those tropical climates. He put the things that should live in the water. He, he put that in the water. And, then, and he did everything in such perfect order. And then he, he set up a situation where we would be able to realize that he has a plan. And the, the plan that he put together was that he would speak and he would, he would uh, make a place in our hearts where we would be able to, to know him and then he would give us a job to witness to people so that they could get to know him. And so that was what he did. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, verse in, in um, let's see, Mark chapter 16. Let me go there. Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. This is the great commission. And this is what he told us we are to do. He told the disciples this. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be Condemned, And these signs shall follow those who believe. In my name they shall cast out demons. They shall speak with new tongues. 
They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. <clears throat> As I look at that, I think it's such a beautiful thing how God has laid everything out, and he's given us a responsibility to speak to the world. He doesn't, um, he doesn't just speak to the world and the world yields and then gives the hearts to him. But he calls us to pick up the torch and take the light of the gospel to the world. He said, you are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And right after the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And so he's called us and told us this is what he wants us to do. Now, in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, he says, How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. We were ministering in Thailand a few years ago. And um, as we were ministering there, why, we were just uh, really enjoying up in the mountains ministering to these Thai people. There were 70 leaders who were there, men and women. And they were there from all over that portion of Thailand, not too far from Chiang Mai. And so as we were there ministering to them, I was teaching them on this scripture, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. And as I began to teach them, and it says that uh, brings good news and um, that publish peace, that brings good tidings of good things that publishes salvation that say unto Zion, thy God reigns. And so I looked down and we had a cement floor in this uh, pavilion and had a roof, but it didn't have walls and it had a cement floor. And all these leaders were there. And the culture of Asia is you walk in to the building and then you take your shoes off before you walk in and then as you enter the building, often in, in, in Japan, they will have shoes there and you put those shoes on or those sandals, most cases. And so, but these people here were very poor in Thailand. And so they walked to the door and they left their flip-flops. Everybody had flip-flops. They left those flip-flops outside on the dirt and then they walked in. And they, many of them looked alike. I don't know how they chose, how they told them apart after they got back out. But they'd walked in, and so they walked in barefooted. They didn't have any other shoes to put on. And uh, yet they could not walk into the building with those sandals on. And so they walked in barefooted. And I looked around, and I'm teaching on how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. But I'm looking at all the toes. There are 10 times 70 toes. And so as I saw all of this, it, the thing occurred to me, this is a perfect opportunity to put this scripture to work and take photographs. So I asked him, I said, I would like for you to do me a favor after this service is finished. Would you please meet me outside? And for every one of you, I don't want any of you to exempt yourself. I want to take a picture of your feet. So I had them, I picked out a nice square of grass and there was a lot of the area that was not covered in grass 
And, but there were, I found a good patch of grass and I had everybody stand on assignment, stand right there and I'll take a picture of your feet. And uh, I got a few of their faces, but I took the picture of their feet. That was what I wanted to see. <laughs> and then I remember back here, just about where that world map is, one year I uh, displayed our uh, missions board and I had those pictures of feet all the way around that uh, board. And I thought about that and I thought how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of those who carry the gospel. And these people, some of them, their feet were the roughest looking feet. They had been, it looked like they'd been to hell and back. <laughs> they were in rough shape. They had scratches, they had tears. They had all kinds of roughness about them. They were not beautiful feet, but they were beautiful in the eyes of the Lord. <laughs> and as I did that, I thought of a book written by Don Richardson. And the name of the book was Eternity in Their Hearts. And that book is uh, largely about Asians, but it's about people all over the world. And uh, in his book, he's given an example of hundreds of cultures around the world who have a belief in the one true God and many of them had that belief long before the missionaries came. Long before the first missionary arrived to bring them Jesus. It was in their mythology. It was in their way of thinking. It was in their teachings. And so they, here they were uh, with the, the gospel message in theory but they didn't know the details. And so there they were. And it's evident that God placed in the hearts of men and women an understanding of him in many cases long before they ever had the first preacher stand up, long before they ever had the first missionary come to them. And so as all of that happened, I think throughout time, Satan has done his best to make it look like God didn't know what he was doing and he messed up. And so, I mean, even Gandhi said, I would be a Christian except for the Christians. And I think of a lot of people who they've uh, somehow got it in their mind. And I think, and often, and I know there are a lot of messed up Christians, <laughs> but there are also a lot of deceptions. And a lot of times people think that Christians are worse than they are when in fact they just are uh, skewing their thinking and uh, not recognizing that the devil does a bad job in humanity. And so from the beginning, God placed within man an unction, a desire to serve God, a connection to the heart of God. When my, God made you, he laid you out on the table. Let's make it like an individual case. He laid you out on that table and there you were like a duffel bag, empty, had nothing in you. And he just before he zipped you up, he put in lungs and liver and muscles and tissues and nerves. And he put in uh, appendix and he put all these different organs in there. He didn't just throw them in, but he had a special place he would put them. But then when he got all through with all of that, he decided, okay, now, and uh, I'm going to take, a, he said, I'm going to take, and I see, I see water right here. I'm going to take a vacuum and I'm going to stick it in there and it will be empty. Now, what in the world is the purpose of a vacuum? 
Well, it's because some things are going to have to fill that vacuum. And you need to know what you've got down inside. And so inside of us, he put this vacuum. Just before he zipped you up, it was the last thing he put in. And when he zipped you up, it uh, was, it, that is where emptiness lived. That's where loneliness lived. Deep frustrations, guilt lives in that vacuum. A sense of failure, dreams, and even faith in that vacuum. And as they were there, the creator left his fingerprints on you, on every one of us. And from the beginning of time, man has tried to fill that vacuum with everything. We've tried to fill it with uh, drugs, with sports, with sex, with entertainment, with work, with gambling, with greed, and everything imaginable. He has tried to, we have tried to fill it with all of these things, but nothing has ever filled it sufficiently because it's fleeting. It, it's there, but it's like a vapor, and it's there, and the guilt, and then the guilt's not there. I don't feel it anymore, and then it comes back. And other things fill our hearts. And then we try to fill it with other things. And yet, as we do, it just doesn't seem to always work. And so that vacuum that is there. According to U.S. Center for Rural Missions, they say that 25% of all Muslims who come to Jesus Christ do so after having had a dream. They've had a dream in the middle of the night Jesus came, sat on the side of their bed. They met him somewhere. Uh, an angel came to them. Usually Jesus would come to them. But he does not, though he could tell them about the plan of salvation and he could do everything in order for them to give their hearts to him, they don't do it. He doesn't do it. And so he leaves it to where it's like a job unfinished because he's waiting for you to do your job. And your job is to go and take the Great Commission and win the world for Jesus Christ. You are to close the sale. You are to close the deal. He started it for those people who knew nothing of him. They had this dream and then they were left as if to say, what's next? They don't know and they wait and they wait. Sometimes days, sometimes weeks, Sometimes years, but usually within weeks, something happens because he sends one of us to them. I was ministering in Basel, Switzerland, and the church used to be the church. It was our field church for a little while. Uh, we then moved our base to Germany. We lived in Germany in the Black Forest, and uh, in this church, <clears throat> a Swede by the name of Dan Buckland was pastoring, <coughs> and uh, is this water good? I think I'll use it. Oh, that's nice. Smart water. Uh, I'm just getting ready to climb in my IQ. So I was ministering there, and um, I asked Dan, I said, who's my interpreter? He said, he'll come right up away, he told me a name I didn't recognize. And uh, the man came up in a few moments. Now, this is a unique church. It's an interesting church. Have only about 30 people, 25 or 30 people 
attend that church on a regular basis, but they always have just under 100 people in attendance because there are refugee centers near them. And so there in Switzerland, why these people are a working congregation. If you did not want to work, you did not join that church. You just uh, found another church. But if you wanted to work, if you wanted to take the, the, the uh, message of the gospel and take it to the generations, then you could be a part of that church. And so what happened is all week long, all these people, would, they would start talking to them about coming to church on Sunday. And so they would witness to them and all kinds of changes took place in the community. I looked at my, my interpreter and he was from Iran, and I said to him, what is your name? I, I mean, it stopped. It's, I mean, everybody, hold, stop, cut. And I turned to him and I said, excuse me, what is your name? And he told me his name. And I said, where are you from? He's from Iran, I'm Persian. And so I said, uh, could we have lunch together afterwards? Now, I'm, I'm the congregation just sitting here. I mean, my, many of them didn't know the language that I was speaking. And so I just said, uh, when we're finished, why, we will uh, go have lunch together. And he said, that would be good. And so I said, incidentally, how long have you been a Christian? And he said, three weeks. I said, what was your former religion? Muslim? Well, I was a little concerned. <laughs> What are we going to preach today? And I, <clears throat> I didn't know. And so I have him. I, I found out later, man, he did an excellent job. Why? Because this man was born again. But anyway, what happened is I said to him at lunch, I said, tell me, how did you come to Jesus? He said, well, I had a dream. He said, I was back there in Iran and I had this dream. And in this dream, I saw a crater where a meteor had fallen out of the sky. And he said it was fresh. It was still hot. And he said the, the steam was still rising from the crater. And this huge rock had fallen out of the sky. And there it was, this hole in the surface. <clears throat> and then I, I stood on the edge of it and I was looking at it, surveying it. I looked on the other side of the crater and there was a man in red robes. And he said, when I saw him, I immediately did the sign of the cross on my chest. And he said to me, what is this you do on your chest? And he said, it's the sign of the cross. Who taught you this? Well, we have... Um, Armenians in our area and they have taught us the sign of the cross why do you do this thing and I told him because you are Jesus and he said do not do what you do not understand he said I thought that was interesting and then we sat down and for the next 15 minutes, we talked about many things. And then he proceeded at lunch to tell me all that they talked about. 
I'm telling you, this was an insight for me. Getting into the world of what was happening to, as they say in the U.S. Center for World Missions, when someone who doesn't know anything about the Lord is introduced by the Lord himself. And so as I sat there listening to him, he said, and then it was finished and he was gone and the dream was over and I woke up and I was left puzzled. What was this all about? And then I went through hard times there in, uh, he said, this was just months ago. He said, I went through hard times there in Iran, the political upheaval and all of the things that were going on. And I found that I could escape and I could come as a refugee to Switzerland to this refugee camp down the road here. And so I did. And I brought my family and here we are. Three weeks ago, he said I was, <laughs> he said I was walking down the street here in Basel and one of the members of this church walked up to me and said, would you like to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And I said, yes. And he said, at that moment, I became a Christian. And he said, that's why I'm here today. And I said, welcome home, brother. <laughs> it was beautiful. <clears throat> and so, we were, several years ago, we were in Burma. And we were in um, Thailand ministering. And as we were there, why, we were near to Chiang Mai. And then we came over. Uh, we were going to go into Burma. And so we were working in, Chiang, in Thailand with a refugee camp. And in this refugee camp, there are the Karen people. It's spelled as if it's K-A-R-E-N, Karen, my sister's middle name. And uh, so, but it's pronounced the Karen people. And so as, I, as I, we were working with them and Wade and Linda Thompson, those of you who might know them, they were, we were together, and so we were working there at this refugee camp. And as we were there, why, the, uh, the, the, there was just a, such an interesting thing going on, and uh, these Karen people are there because they are hated by the Burmese, and the Burmese have a, uh, they, they despise them so much, they've actually tried to, uh, totally annihilate the Korean people. The Korean people love Jesus. They love the Lord, but they love the Lord since long before they ever had the first missionary come to them. They didn't know anything about God, but they knew that there was only one God, which the Burmese disagreed with, but they knew there was only one God, and that one God they would serve and his name was Yahweh. That's all they knew. They didn't know how, but somehow it had traveled down through the, the centuries. And in 1795, 228 years ago, the Korean people had an English, had a British diplomat 
come to their part. They'd never seen a white man, never seen a white man, but they had their prophets told them that the day will come when there will be, and this is from centuries ago, there will come a day when a white man will come and bring the gospel to you. But he will bring with him a book. He he will bring with him a book. And when he brings that book, he will from that book tell you all about this God whose name is Yahweh. And so that's what they told them. And so they asked this British diplomat, did you bring the book? And he said, what book? And they said, the book so you can tell us about the God called Yahweh. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. But they were disappointed. It took a while. But the gospel finally got to the Korean people and everything changed. And now, when you go there, when you go there, it's amazing because these are some of the nicest people you ever met in your life. This British man, British diplomat said, the Burmese are, they're angry, they're bitter, they have their issues. But he said, the Korean people, some of the kindest, nicest people in the world. And um, when we met them, I was a little bit confused because they seemed to me to be very much like the Filipino people. We've been to the Philippines and we love the Filipino people. They're, they're beautiful people and I could go on and on. I, when we were in, pastoring in London, we had, had uh, 35 Filipinos who were part of our church. And uh, if, if I call American Express, I will usually get a Filipino <laughs> in the Philippines. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, but it's interesting. And, and I've told some of those, uh, those technicians, I've told some of them a little bit about Jesus Christ and a little bit about the stories that I've experienced through working with the Philippines. And so, but it's interesting, all these things. And so anyway, this Englishman was, did not bring the book, so he didn't know what in the world they were talking about. But I find that it is so powerful when you realize that God is called, he, he gives them dreams, and it's happened not only with the uh, Muslims, but it's happened with the Buddhists, it's happened with sometimes the Hindus, it's happened sometimes with people of just all kinds of different religions where Jesus would appear to them. And I've talked to several of them who have had these dreams, and then Jesus would appear to them. And so I think it's a beautiful thing how God does all things well. Can you say amen? Amen. Now, when we were, uh, at one point when we were living in London, we were pastoring a church. We were living in Brixton. And just a bit south of us, there was a a, a city called Bournemouth. And uh, there is a Baptist church there. And this Baptist church, the name of it is the Lansdowne Baptist Church. And there's a pastor there by the name of Francis Dixon. And this pastor, one morning when he was finishing up the service, why, there was a man who stood up in the back and he said, excuse me, may I give a testimony? And the pastor looked at his watch and he said, yes, if you could make it brief, 
We would be glad to hear your story. And so the man said, a few weeks ago, I was visiting a relative in Sydney, Australia and was walking down George Street. It's a shopping area. When a little white-haired man stepped out of the doorway of a shop and asked me a question, he said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you died tonight, would you go to heaven? He said, I was disturbed at his words. I'd never had anybody ask me such a question. I've never been a Christian. I had never had any awareness of what all of that was about. And yet here I was standing on a, a shopping street in Sydney, Australia, hearing a man ask me, are you going to heaven or hell? Well, it bothered me. I didn't engage with him. I didn't talk with him because I didn't know what to say. And I got on a plane, British Airways, and I flew back to London. And all the way back, it bothered me until I got home. And when I got back to, the, to London, he said, I made a, he said, I called a friend and asked him about this. What did the man mean? And my friend was a Christian. And he led me to Jesus. <laughs> so he said, I've made a decision and I would like, Pastor, to make this my church that I attend. May I come here? And everybody just <laughs> clapped their hands. They were so happy to have a new member right there. <laughs> and so it was an interesting thing. This Pastor Dixon, the pastor from behind the pulpit, flew to Adelaide, Australia the next week from uh, Bournemouth. He flew to Adelaide, Australia to speak in a church. And after a service, a woman asked, may I speak with you? And before she could tell him what she wanted to say, he said, I would like to know, have you given your life to Jesus Christ? And she said, that's an interesting question. I would like to tell you a story. She said, um, he, she said, I was visiting friends in Sydney, Australia. And she said, I was doing some last minute shopping on a shopping area known as George Street. And she said, a little white haired man stepped out of the doorway of a shop <laughs> and he asked me, excuse me, ma'am, are you saved? If you died tonight, would you go to heaven? I was greatly disturbed, she said, by this man's words. I returned to Adelaide and she said, I came to this church and I said to the pastor, what, what does this mean? I just found this church and I walked in and I talked to the pastor and said, what does it mean? And he led me to Christ. Twice in two weeks from the time that man, that stranger stood up in his church, twice he had come in contact with people who had met a little white-haired short man in George Street in Sydney. We've been to Sydney. I don't know if I've been down George Street, but I didn't meet the man uh, because he died before we were there. But... He then flew on to Perth 
And in Perth, um, this, uh, after a couple days of ministering, this elder took him out to dinner. And when he took him out to dinner, why, he said, uh, uh, the pastor Dixon asked him a question. Could you tell me how you came to Jesus? And he said, huh, that's, a, that's an interesting story. He said, as a matter of fact, he said, I grew up in church and I was a businessman and very, very successful. And I was on a business trip to, uh, and they made me an elder in this church as a businessman and very successful. Uh, I was on a business trip to Sydney and I was walking down a street called George <laughs> and this little white-haired man walked out of the shadows and he asked me, if I died tonight, would I go to heaven? Was I saved? And I was so angry at him. And I said, well, I have you know I'm an elder in the church. Didn't even seem to faze him. He didn't even act like I'd said anything. I came back home and I came to my pastor and I said, here in Perth, I, I, I don't understand. This man asked me such a question and, and then he acted like I didn't say anything. And the pastor said, you know, for several years I've been concerned about you and I've been wondering if you would ever meet the Lord, what it would mean. And I'd like to lead you to Jesus Christ right now. <laughs> and he led him to the Lord. There were about eight stories of people who went to George Street and met this man who came and accosted them with a question. And finally, the last one that I will, I will tell you is uh, he came to a, I mean, there was one conference where four elderly pastors came up after the service and said to Brother Dixon, uh, we got our heads together and we found out that 25 to 30 years ago, there was a little short white-haired man who spoke to all of us individually and we gave our hearts to the Lord after our encounter with him. And then, then um, the last one that I'll tell is about this man. He flew to India. And in India, he, he met, he spoke several days for this conference and there were 5,000 Indian missionaries who were there. And uh, the leader of the group was uh, the head of this group. And this man said, uh, I would like to take you home to my house for dinner. So he said, good, I would love to go. And so they went to the man's house. The leader of these 5,000 missionaries went to their, his home. And when they, he got there, he said, before you say anything, I'd like to ask you, how did you come to Jesus? And he said, oh, that's a story. He said, when I, I was Hindu, and always as Hindu, I was with the Hindu diplomatic services or diplomatic mission. And he said, I traveled all over the world. I was quite well to do. And having this position, why, I was everywhere. And he said, 
we stopped in Sydney, Australia. And he said, when I stopped there, why, I decided before I would go home, I would go do some shopping. And I went down to George Street and did some shopping. And when I was shopping and I had my arms laden with all kinds of gifts for my wife and my children, and nobody knows the sin I was involved in in those days as a Hindu and flying all over the world and he said, I was laden down with these weapons and a man came out of the shadows of a shop and he said to me, excuse me, sir, are you saved? If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or to hell? I was puzzled. It was like he was speaking another language. I didn't understand what in the world he was talking about. I was frustrated all the way back to India. And when I got back, I sought out my Hindu priest. And I went to him and I said, what does this man mean? I don't understand. And the Hindu said, well, I don't know myself how to give you an answer. I'd suggest you go see the Christian missionary. So he said, I did. And he led me to Jesus. <laughs> Well, I quit the Hindu diplomatic mission. And he said, now I've been for several years now head of this 5,000 missionaries and we've led tens of thousands to Jesus Christ. Well, this Dixon, Pastor Dixon, listened to all of this and then he took another trip. And this time he flew right into Sydney and when he flew into Sydney, why he was ministering for a church there and the pastor, he said to the pastor, I want to ask you a question. He said, Do you, have you ever heard of a little short white-haired man who ministers on George Street? <laughs> and he said, oh, yes, that's Frank Jenner. J-E-N-N-E-R. Folks, you can look it up on Google and you can look up Frank Jenner, J-E-N-N-E-R, and it'll tell you the story. And as he, he went to that, so he said to this pastor, is there any way you know him, you know him? And he said, oh, yes, I know him well. He said, is it possible you could introduce me to him? I'd like to meet him. And he said, well, yes. And two days later, they knocked on the door of Frank Jenner's house. And this old white-haired man who had had uh, Parkinson's, he was shaking very badly. And um, he said, uh, yes, may I help you? And we told him, and, and he recognized me, uh, this, uh, this man. And so he invited them in and he served them tea. And he was shaking his cup so badly it was spilling on his saucer. And, but he managed to get to drink most of the tea. And he said we had tea with him. And then he said, this uh, pastor said, I'd like to tell you some stories that I've experienced through the years. And he told him about everything that I've shared with you and more. And as he told him all these stories about Nine, eight or nine stories 
Why then, this man began to weep. He said, I'd like to tell you my story. He said, I was on the ships in the South Pacific, and he said, for the military, and he said, I was serving them, and everything was going well, but he said, um, there was a man, a Christian, whom I had treated very badly, and I was very offensive to him. And after a while, man, this got the best of me, and I realized I need to go and apologize to this man for how roughly I had treated him. And so I went to his home. And as I went to his home, and I was telling him how badly I felt, and I wouldn't do it again. The man was Christian, and he led me to Jesus. Well, as Frank Jenner said, when he did, I was so thankful because now I had Jesus in my heart. It had changed my life. And so he said, I made a decision that for the rest of my life, every day, I will tell 10 people about Jesus. For the rest of my life, and that's been over 40 years, I will ask 10 people every day, excuse me, are you saved? If you were to die today, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? I decided I would do that. In these years, I've been doing that as faithfully as I could. There have been some days I've not had good health. I haven't been able to do that. But most days, over these years, I have asked 10 people, sometimes more, sometimes less, but I tried to keep at least 10 people every day. And you know, he said, Pastor, I'm going to have to be honest with you. In all the years that I've told people about Jesus, I've never had anybody tell me how they went away and gave their life to Christ. <laughs> he began to weep. I want to ask you, how did you come to Christ? There are people here, I, I'd say probably 98, 99, maybe 100% are believers. You're Christians. But if you are or if you aren't, I want you to think about it. And then I want you to think about once you've made that decision and if you become a Christian or if you are a Christian, what are you doing about it? You say, but I'm, I'm too shy to witness. I can't, I can't just walk up to total strangers and ask them these questions. These questions, I can't do that. I'm, I'm shy. That's hogwash. <laughs> you say, well, I'm just too timid. I want to tell you something. If somebody's heaven or hell were depending on you to have witnessed to them, would you want to be accountable to take the gospel to them? I love being a missionary. I remember in my own story, and some of you, most of you, I think, probably a lot of you have heard my story, but when I was five and six years of age, I would beg my parents to take me to church, and they refused. They did not want to go to church. We had visited a church because somebody would coerce us and invite us to come to the church, but my family in Bristol, Virginia, they just did not want to go to church and refused, and so they didn't take me. And it wasn't until I was 11 and a half years of age did my family 
walk into a church of God in Bristol, Tennessee, sit down on the back row. My parents, I was the oldest of four children. So there was me, there was Rick, there was Freddie, and then there was Wendy, the four of us and my parents. We sat down on the back row for years. I had wanted to go, and my story's a lot more involved than that, but, and I've told it here times in the past. But I sat there, and then I heard this man, Con Henley. I was 11 and a half. He's, I'm sure, long since with the Lord. But he was an evangelist, and he stood up and he said, in this building, he said, would you like to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? If you would, come down this aisle and kneel at this altar and repent, weep your way through to salvation. If you'll do that, you'll be born again. Repent of everything you've ever done. We, my parents stood up. I looked at them, 11 and a half. I looked at them and I stood up. My parents walked down the aisle. They didn't say anything to us. They walked down the aisle. I followed them. My brother followed them, Rick. My, sis, my other brother followed them, Fred. And then my sister, Wendy, all the way down, stair steps. We got down the altar and we all cried and wept our way through to salvation. It was a beautiful experience. I know what it means when you don't know Jesus, but you're hungry to know him. And I thank God because I've been a Christian all the days of my life. And I want to say to you, what do you need to do to become a believer in the point where you begin to take the, 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 the message of Jesus Christ to others? Tell others about him. And if you will do that, it'll change your life. Hallelujah. Let's give him a hand. <clears throat> you know, I, I'm just thrilled because he's, he's done so much for me. And I realize that he's done so much for every one of us. And I think so many of you, I know some of you, I know your stories. And I'm very grateful because he's, he's made such a difference in my life. I'd like for us to stand, please. If Jesus has made a difference in your life, try to make a difference in someone else's life. Try to tell somebody else about the Lord. And if you will, it will make a difference in their lives. And uh, it will cause their world to change and to become blessed. I want you to take your hand, your right hand, put it over your own heart. And I want you to say, Lord, I want you to give my, I, I want you to help me be the most effective I can be. I want you to help me to be a believer. And if there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus, these altars are open. But you don't have to come to this altar to give your life to Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. You can do it right where you stand. I, I remember, and I was trying to think this morning about this man. I was in a church somewhere. I don't even remember what country we were in, but it was in a church and there was an old man 
who looked like he was close to 80 years of age. And he was standing and he was looking at me after the service. And I could tell he wanted to say something, but he, he was very shy man and he didn't, he didn't make a move from where he was. And I just felt like I need to go to him. So I just walked back to him and I said to him, I said, sir, have you received Jesus Christ in your life? Uh, are you a believer? He said, no. No, I've, I've never become a Christian. And I said, um, do you attend this church? He said, yes. How long have you been coming here? Oh, more than a year. And you haven't given your heart to the Lord? No. And I said, would you like for me to pray with you? He said, no, 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 no. No, I, I don't... I don't want to pray publicly. And I realized this man was too shy and he would not open his mouth to speak words of repentance or any of these things. So I realized, and I noticed the pastor and one of the elders was standing off to one side, off in a distance, but able to hear everything that was being said to this man because they were curious what was going to happen. And so I, I just ignored them and I said to him, I said, you know, I realize he's too shy to follow through. So I said, I would like to pray a prayer, but I'm going to close my mouth and pray in my mind. And I would like for you to do the same. Would you close your mouth? Don't open it and don't utter any words. But I want you to think in your mind, repentance. I want you to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior right now. I want you to repent of everything you've ever done. Close your eyes. And he said, I said, can you do that? That way nobody will know what you're doing. And he said to me, I can do that. I said, good. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to shut my mouth. And I'm going to pray a prayer in my mind. And he said, I said, can you do that? He said, I'll do that. And he prayed. We closed our eyes. And in a few moments, I said, now, is the job finished? Have you given your heart to Jesus Christ? Have you repented? And he said, I've done it. <laughs> and the pastor said to me later, he says, he said, I didn't know how to handle him. Because I've been trying to get him to come to the Lord for all this time and I, I had no success. Folks, there's more than one way to deal with a problem. You just need to ask the Lord for wisdom.